everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Matt Luckett from Cal State Dominguez Hills. Welcome to our show, Matt. Thanks for having me on, David. So, you guys are starting a prison's master degree at the Cal State Dominguez Hills. Um, and so I'm wondering um, how that program came about. Well, um, so it, it's a little bit of a story. Uh, so originally, Hux was founded in 1974. So it was a correspondence program. Uh, we educated over 5,700 students. And uh, it was a correspondence first, uh, program first. And then as time evolved, or time went by, sorry, I can't talk today. Um, as time goes by, uh, and as more internet programs, uh, distance learning programs embrace the internet, uh, Huck starts sort of appending onto it some of those uh, you know, online tools. But it never really measured up because it was at its heart a correspondence degree. So by 2016, enrollment had dropped to such a point that they decided to start teaching it out. Now, one of our traditional strengths uh, over the past, I guess, 40 years prior to the teach out uh, was that we were able to reach incarcerated students uh, by virtue of the fact that it was a correspondence degree. So I and several other people uh, at the school uh, as the teach out started, we started lobbying for some form of hux to continue um, for incarcerated students. To my knowledge, it was the only master's program in the country that offered a master's in humanities to incarcerated students. So it seemed like that was too valuable of a thing to give up. Uh, and so over the past several years, we lobbied for it. Uh, more and more people uh, joined our effort, you know, kind of like a snowball uh, rolling downhill. Uh, we started getting more people involved. And so we've gotten to the point now where uh, this fall we're, we're going to be launching. So it's a, a brand new program, um, a new curriculum. For the most part, it's a new curriculum and uh, mostly new faculty. And it's it's been revamped. But we've focused our efforts this time on incarcerated students. So instead of this being a program that sort of by default uh, was the only program available for incarcerated students. We're going into this with intentionality of optimizing it for incarcerated students and doing uh, everything that we can to, um, you know, build, make it successful uh, for that constituency. So to the extent that 
it's been fleshed out, what is this program going to look like? So uh, one of the traditional strengths of Hux was that we had all these different classes and all these different ways that, that students can go. Uh, before we had like five different disciplinary focuses, you know, you could do history, literature, philosophy. But in the 21st century, I mean, I think we sort of conceptualize the, the humanities as being a little bit bigger and more expansive than that. So instead of focusing on disciplines, we're focusing on themes. So we've tried to take kind of a similar tack this time. Instead of having disciplinary focuses, uh, we have these what we call course blocks. So every student needs to complete one block of classes. That's four classes uh, that represent different disciplinary approaches to a, a single problem or a single uh, subject. So some of those include uh, perspectives on punishment, uh, urban development, uh, religion, morality, spirituality. So you know, we have a, a number of different subjects that are then explored from all these different classes and all these different perspectives. So we try to keep that variety and that sort of choose your own adventure um, element within this program. Uh, one other thing that we did was our previous program had a had a thesis uh, requirement, but given the the constraints of incarcerated education, the fact that there's just not a whole lot of primary sources available, uh, sort of the logistics, I think, really militated against that. So instead, we have a, a capstone experience where students uh, reflect then on their journey up into that point, the classes they've taken, the things they've learned, and then they apply it to the future. You know, what do they plan on doing with this degree? Uh, going into the workforce, um, advocacy, creative endeavors. So that's sort of their opportunity to, to then connect their, their studies with what they conceive of as being sort of their future path. So what, what is your background and how did you get interested in, in this particular program? Well, um, so I have a PhD in history. And uh, I think like a lot of people with PhDs in history these days, uh, I had uh, a lot of difficulty finding a tenure track job, uh, which is to say I didn't. Uh, and so I was uh, teaching part time down in Los Angeles. And I was, uh, I, I got to know some of the people that were involved with Fox uh, before the decision was made to teach it out. And so then when they made the, the teach at decision, uh, they, they sort of appointed me to do it. And as we were teaching it out, I talked to more and more of our students who were incarcerated. And I start to learn more about uh, just how valuable and how essential this program was uh, for, for these students. And that's when I became sort of, an, I guess, an advocate for it. Uh, first by lobbying for some new program and then just you know, rolling up my sleeves and, and building it, um, you know, with, with the help of some of my, uh, my allies on campus. So. And, and what, what is your experience kind of working with, uh, incarcerated students? Before this program, uh, very little, uh, I mean, like, I think like most academics, you know, we're trained to go in a certain direction. And so the direction I was trained to go in uh, was you get a tenure track job and then you write books about your specialization. Uh, incidentally, my my historical uh, work has been in vigilantism. So vigilantes, 
Uh, I wrote my first book on horse stealing. So, you know, I have a, I already had an interest in, in law and order, criminal justice, uh, and, you know, that sort of thing. So that, that sort of predated my, my work for Hux. Um, but really prior to that, I, I didn't know. I, I think one of the things that, that I've sort of learned to do, and I think a lot of other people, uh, after getting a PhD, not getting that quote unquote job, is you know we find a place to to sort of you know use our our talents and our education and uh just try to find a, a way to make the world a little bit better and so i think for me you know it was serendipitous uh you know that that i i found hux or i maybe hux found me i don't know but uh it it seemed like uh a great way to to then channel uh, all that, all those years of training for, you know, for that job I never got, but, uh, you know, I was talking to my, my wife yesterday and saying like, you know, I, I think this is what I was meant to do with it. And, you know, it seems like the closer we get to launching this program, the more I feel like, you know, this was, uh, this was the direction I was supposed to take with it. And are you able to speak to kind of the need, uh, for, you know, incarcerated people to, you know, a lot of them, of course, are, are are just trying to get a GED and get a high school diploma. Um, but, you know, um, have you looked into some of the uh, literature on, you know, education for incarcerated people and how that's so beneficial for them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been uh, diving into that and, you know, just trying to educate myself on, on those topics and uh, the benefits that, for instance, I, I read somewhere, and I keep trying to track down the study, but uh, I read somewhere, actually a couple of different places, that the recidivism rate for students with a master's degree uh, was almost 0%. And I mean, that's just that's phenomenal. I mean, considering how much money, you know, we spend every year uh, on, on, you know, per, per prisoner, on prisons, on security, on the walls, on the electric fences and everything like that. I mean, it's our program is substantially cheaper than that. Uh, and, and the outcomes are far more positive and almost a guarantee, you know, to eliminate or significantly reduce uh, recidivism among our students. It's, it's I mean, it's a no brainer. Um, and it's interesting because for so long, they were moving in the other direction. They were cutting programming out. They were uh, you know, in a lot of places, it's really hard even to get, you know, a bachelor's uh, program access. So, yeah, I mean, coming at, so I kind of, one of the, my perspectives coming into this is I'm a first generation college student. Uh, so my father was a HVAC technician. Um, you know, my mom sort of worked her way through a bunch of jobs and then eventually uh, found her place as a uh, children's librarian. Uh, so I'm from St. Louis, very blue collar family, uh, and definitely the first person in my family with a PhD, um, you know, first generation uh, bachelors. And so I understand just how precious it is and how uh, not standardized it is for people to have a bachelor's degree. Uh, you know, not everybody I, I grew up with got that. I realized just how fortunate I was and how lucky I was. Uh, to be able to go to a four-year college, uh, to have that, you know, that college experience, to get that education. And then from there, 
to go on and get a master's degree, get a PhD. I mean, I was incredibly uh, fortunate uh, to be able to do that. And I think kind of going back to what you know you're saying, right? Like uh, a lot of programs have been cut, and I think the presumption there was, oh well, you know, why should people get a, a education or a bachelor's degree for going to prison? You know, like we should be punishing them. They shouldn't be getting something good out of this. And I just want to ask those people, like, did you go to college? Um, you know, I learned a lot in college, but my college had an omelet bar. Okay. I mean, you know, it's, it was a very different kind of situation, I think. So it's, it's a very different experience, uh, you know, offering education to prisoners. Um, but I would say though, and that's just my student, you know, and, and sort of my family background. Right. But as an educator, it's so incredibly positive. Um, to meet these students and to see their passion and to see um, just the amount of work that they put into these programs. I mean, I, the, I have, I've had a lot of conversations with, you know, other educators who teach both, you know, inside the prison walls and outside of it. And there's a, such a difference and such a contrast um, between a lot of our students, you know, inside a prison and then a lot of our students outside who don't, I think maybe take for granted a little bit more um, the fact that they're there, the fact that they're getting an education. They might not put as much maybe work into it, resolve. I mean, I'm I'm trying to be charitable, right? But it's it is a contrast, and it's such a pleasure to work with students who are so engaged and so passionate. Um, and so committed to to their education. It's just, it's a real pleasure. You, you mentioned that you're from St. Louis. I saw a uh, really fascinating statistic earlier this year that, you know, St. Louis unfortunately has the highest murder rate in the country. And I, I forget the years, but, um, but basically over like a five-year period, none of the murders in St. Louis involved either as a victim or an offender somebody who had a high school diploma or more. Wow. I, I hadn't heard that, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's stunning, but it makes sense at the same time. Yeah. I, St. Louis, and this is just one of those weird sort of, um, you know, this could be a Jeopardy question, right? I mean, like St. Louis City and St. Louis County are, uh, are very different. They have actually completely different county governments. Uh, St. Louis is an independent city, so it's cut off in the tax base of the county, like almost completely. And so white flight, you know, I think guts the city uh, more deeply and, you know, just robs it of even more resources than you would see in, in other places, right? Like I live in Sacramento. And so, you know, there's certainly white flight here, but you know, Sacramento City and Sacramento County share a lot of those resources. Whereas when you go to St. Louis, uh, it's it stops at the city border. And so at that point, you know, like your entire tax base is there. And so as that becomes more economically depressed, it just enters this spiral. Uh, and, you know, having left the city, I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, you know, watching that that continue to happen, um, it's been very sad and, and you know depressing. Um, 
And I don't know, there's no easy way out of that, of reversing that trend. It just, it becomes this self-fulfilling cycle of poverty. Um, but, you know, I, I think what you're, you know, speaking about here, and it's not just education, it's just, it's, you know, far broader than that. And all these different, um, you know, needs that are just not being met uh, in the city at all. And, yeah. But the education factor is so strong in terms of deterring crime. I mean, you can look at the statistics. And then, as you pointed out, you know, people with masters have a zero percent recidivism rate. And I can tell you, like, you know, in California, even now, the recidivism rate is about 60, 65 percent. So, you know, almost two thirds of the people that go in, uh, once they're released, are going to come back out and reoffend again, uh, which is sad. Um, and it seems like, you know, there are, there, we know ways to prevent this. We just have to put the resources in. No, I absolutely agree with that. Um, so I'm wondering um, how many students are, are you guys going to be able to uh, accommodate? I think right now we can probably handle about 25. And, and the reason why I think we need a limited initially is we're going to offer three different modalities. So we're going to have online classes. We're going to have a CDCR online classes, and then we're going to have correspondence. So, you know, our online classes, we want these to be, you know, sort of gold star uh, certified classes, just the, the best you can do, like, like the Michelin star of online classes, right? Like, quality matters certification and everything like that. We want that to be our starting point because we feel it's important to emphasize to our students uh, that, you know, we are giving them and providing the best education we we can, right? And part of that's just this, you know, uh, growing historical uh, sort of uh, pejorative, uh, I, I think people tend to look at correspondence classes and courses as being lesser. So we're trying to fight against that by kind of approaching it the other way. Uh, CDCR Canvas will be offering uh, asynchronous classes through uh, CDCR-issued laptops and tablets. So uh, students will be able to use a number of different online um, tools. They'll be able to access EBSCO hosts. They can watch videos. They can listen to music. So they can do things that you, you certainly couldn't do with a bound volume uh, correspondence class. But then the third thing we'll have is a correspondence class. So, and the reason why I mentioned this too is uh, students face a number of different obstacles, you know, throughout these programs. Uh, there might be times when a student is on lockdown, they're not able to access Wi-Fi because the Wi-Fi is in the common area. And like during COVID, you know, students were locked in their cells, they weren't able to leave, they weren't able to go to common spaces. So they wouldn't have been able to access this class. Uh, you know, similar, there, there might be a situation where a student is paroled. So we want to be able to meet a student at wherever their technological access is. So be that uh, they're paroled, they're able to take a fully synchronous online class, uh, or if they're sent to some other institution, they're on lockdown, uh, their access is limited or curtailed for some reason, uh, then we can give them correspondence. But, you know, that's, I, I was telling some prospective students today, they're going to be kind of, you know, guinea pigs in this regard because, you know, this isn't a one size, I mean, it's a one size fits all program, but, you know, we can't really take that approach with each student. We have to meet them where they are. So I don't know how much 
um, administrative bandwidth it's going to take to monitor 25 and then the following year 50 students as they progress to the program. But, you know, that's kind of the, the approach that we're taking with that. Yeah, and it's amazing with the tablets, uh, you know, I can sit back and uh, text almost in real time uh, with incarcerated people. It's an easy, quick way to stay in contact. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, and it's really, it's revolutionary uh, what's happening here in California. Uh, between the tablets and the laptops, the almost three dozen uh, associate degree programs, the, I believe now, eight uh, BA programs, it's phenomenal uh, what's happening across the state. Uh, it's just in being part of that moment, I think it's, it's really incredible. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, Obviously, there are going to be a lot more than 25 people that are going to apply. So how are you planning to, you know, kind of weed through it? <laughs> that, that's a really good question. And I, I think I'll punt that till next year. Uh, <laughs> um, we, we're, we're below 25 right now. And I really our biggest problem, I think, at the moment is it's funding. Um, and so. Like there, there's a, there's a, you know, there's, there's some good things, like the good news and the bad news, right? So the, the good news for us is that uh, our program is technically an extension side program. So we're able to offer a lot of classes for a lot less money than you'd be able to offer like stateside. Uh, we're able to hire uh, a pretty big faculty because um, we have enrollment based uh, faculty compensation as opposed to like, paying one faculty member for three credit units, which is typically what happens like on the state side part of campus. I mean, it's a little bit of inside baseball, but I bring that up because that gives us the, the capacity and the bandwidth and the scalability to offer four, five, six different blocks down the line if we want to. Uh, and to have 25, 30, 40, 50 students uh, in the long run, um, you know, which is something that we would be able to do. So it's scalable in that regard. Uh, the bad news though, is that graduate students in prison don't have some of the more recently created uh, financial aid mechanisms that have been created. So for instance, second chance Pell doesn't apply to graduate students. Uh, you know, it's fantastic for undergraduates, but for graduate students, it's, you know, we're, we're sort of out of that, um, that eligibility. So we have to find other ways to help our students or even pay for our students' education. So we're casting a really wide net, um, trying to shake a lot of trees, just trying to find some way to help these students, you know, move through the program. Um, you know, because we don't want to have to end up telling like 25 students, well, you know, you need to pay your tuition, right? Like, good luck, find some money for it. I mean, the last thing they should worry about is tuition. Um, you know, they have so many other things to, to worry about and to think about and to do. We want that to be the last thing on their plate. So I think in terms of future growth and, and where we're, how many students we're able to reach and, and teach, I think a, a large part of that eventually is going to be funding and just finding ways to support these students. Um, and, but, and the other thing I would say too is I don't want us to be the only program. I, I would, obviously, I don't want five other Masters of Humanities programs coming out, you know, like, but we've also tried to be kind of a 
one size fits all, um, almost like Catholic kind of, you know, degree that reaches everything and has, you know, sort of like the, the big tent uh, degree. But, you know, our BA provider colleagues, they, you know, communication studies, all these other different disciplines, you know, I'm sure they're thinking about master's degrees too. And I think fundamentally what these students want is choice. Right. I mean, we could be the first and I would aspire to be the best, but I don't think it's in anyone's interest for us to be the only ones. So I'm hoping, you know, as these cohorts and these graduating, like the combined graduating classes of CDCR um, undergraduates getting their diplomas grows, you know, with every year, with every new program, uh, hopefully in time, there'll be more master's programs uh, to offer as well. Very good. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking time out from your schedule to uh, chat with me about this program. It, uh, I agree. I, I'd love to see it expand because I think, you know, the more we can get education into the prisons, the better off we're going to be. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of the best no brainer investments we can make. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, to launching in, in the fall and moving the case forward. So. We've been talking with Matt Luckett from Cal State Dominguez Hills. They're starting a prison master's degree program. This is Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.